help us um, just understand your heart behind uh, this text, Lord, that we would uh, see both sides, um, God, of, uh, of leadership throughout this series, um, Lord, and you would just uh, raise us up to, to be the, the people, to be the disciples that you've called us to be, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last week in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we discussed... We already got them. <laughs> Thank you, though. Um, I finally remembered. Steve was reminding me about Bibles. I usually forget. Um, last week, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 1, did the intro on the book. We discussed how First and Second Samuel originally was just Samuel, but then when the Septuagint was translated from the uh, from the Hebrew to the Greek, that's when it was divided into two books. But in that chapter, we primarily focused on the faithfulness of Elkanah and Hannah. They were, they were faithful worshipers and they consistently pursued the Lord. And we discussed that quite a bit. We'll still talk about Hannah in this chapter. Uh, in fact, it's a, uh, a famous prayer, Hannah's prayer, the first 10 verses of the second chapter. We'll talk about that. Then the topic is going to shift to uh, specifically Hophni and Phineas, but also to Eli. And we're going to see this comparison and contrasting thing going on. At first, we're going to see Hannah and how she's a sincere seeker of God. And then we're going to look at Hophni and Phineas and see how they're corrupt leaders supposed to be serving God, but they're not, which is the title of this teaching, Sincere Seekers and Corrupt Leaders. Sincere Seekers and Corrupt Leaders. There's a lot of comparison and contrasting, more contrasting specifically in this chapter, and that's really what it's all about. We see Hannah, she's a sincere seeker. We see how God blesses Hannah in so many different ways, not just with Samuel, but while Hannah is a sincere seeker, Hophni and Phineas are corrupt leaders. And we're going to see, the Bible makes it very clear that the reason why Hophni and Phineas are corrupt leaders is because they're not sincere seekers. The reason they're corrupt is because the Bible says they don't know God. So let's look, dive in, 1 Samuel chapter 2, picking it up in verse 1. Okay, so Hannah's prayer. Um, let's read the prayer real quick. We'll break it down some. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hunger have ceased to hunger. The hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven. And she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So we see Hannah, she responds to God answering her prayer and providing a son for her. Remember, she made a deal with God. She made a vow. If you provide for me a son, I will give him back to you. And she dedicated Samuel to the work of the ministry. Now, God answered her prayer in the last chapter. And now we see Hannah. She responds to this answered prayer. And it says she worshiped God. At the end of chapter 1, that's exactly what she does. She worships God, and part of this worship is through prayer. She's praising God because of the prayers that He answered. His faithfulness led her to this place of passion. She realized that God was so faithful, 
And she responded to God's faithfulness by passionately pursuing him. She didn't just say, oh, thanks God for the prayer. Talk to you later when I'm in need again. No, no, no. She allowed that answered prayer to produce passion in her. She actually even pursued the Lord more passionately. And as we see in this prayer, God, through that pursuit, revealed some deep insight to her. Point number one, passionate pursuit leads to deep insight. Passionate pursuit leads to deep insight. As I said, this is a very uh, uh, famous prayer. We'll talk a little bit about that more in just a minute. But we see this response Hannah had to God's faithfulness. She passionately pursued the Lord and the Lord gave her deep insight. There's some awesome stuff, even referencing Jesus Christ as the king, as the anointed. So many cool things that God revealed to her through this passionate pursuit. But the same thing goes for us. When we passionately pursue God, he reveals things to us. He gives us deeper insight into who he is and what his word means. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays this prayer. So he's literally seeking, seeking God on behalf of the church of Ephesus, and he says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not, to, do not cease to give thanks of you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of your, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. This is what he's praying. That God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. See, when we seek God, he does give us that spirit of revelation. He does enlighten the eyes of our understanding. He does take us deeper and deeper in intimacy with him there's so much that comes through a passionate pursuit and we see hannah she learns some deep things about god because she's passionately pursuing him let's talk about some of these things picking it back up in first samuel chapter two we'll break down this prayer a little bit Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Hannah, she just lost her son. Not that he passed, but she just dedicated her son to the Lord. She no longer is in immediate con uh, contact with her son. She sacrificed her son in a sense, yet she rejoices. She wasn't saying, woe is me, I lost my son, now he's going to be at the tabernacle for the rest of his life and I barely get to see him. No, no, no. She rejoiced. Literally, her sacrifice led her to a place of joy. The same holds true for us. When we sacrifice to the Lord, when we sacrifice the things that he asks us to sacrifice, we too will rejoice. Sacrifice, not always something we want to do, but it's something God calls us to do in different ways at different times. And when we choose to do it, we will, like Hannah, experience joy. She rejoices in the fact that she was able to sacrifice Samuel to the Lord. She says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Okay, horn throughout scripture, uh, it's symbolism. It means strength or power. Okay, so what she's saying is my strength or my power is exalted in the Lord. Remember where she came from when she was just praying in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She was in a state of brokenness, right? And God responded to her brokenness. She made herself weak, penina was always dogging on her. She was always saying these mean things to Hannah. And Hannah was brought to that place of brokenness. She couldn't have a son. She sought God and God showed up. So in her weakness, his strength was made perfect. Isn't that what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9? That's why she says, my, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Literally, my strength is exalted. I came to the Lord in weakness and he strengthened me. He exalted my power. He gave me strength. Then she says, I smile at my enemies. Now we know she's specifically talking about Peninnah. That's her enemy. That's the only enemy we know that she has right now. Remember, this was Elkanah's other wife and she would always boast 
about how she has these kids and Hannah isn't able to have kids. So she's able to smile at her enemy. Why? Because God had lifted her up. God had blessed her. God bestowed favor on her. And though she questioned when she was bearing, if God really loved her, if God really had favor on her, God did bless her. God provided her a child. And now she knows, yes, that favor is there. She's able to smile at Penina. Okay, look at that last part of verse two. She says, because I rejoice in your salvation. This is cool. And it comes up all the time in the Old Testament. But what is that word salvation? What's that word in the Hebrew? Salvation. We've talked about it in Genesis. Salvation. What's the Hebrew word for salvation? Yeshua. It's literally Jesus. She's saying, I'm rejoicing in your Jesus. That's really what she's saying, okay? It's crazy. It's very prophetic. She doesn't even realize it at this time, but she's literally saying, I rejoice in your Jesus. I rejoice in your salvation. That's what Yeshua means. God saves. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. No one is holy like the Lord, nor there is none for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Okay, so we're going to see, as we read, uh, this is a form of Hebrew poetry. It's called repetitive parallelism. Okay, repetitive parallelism. Say that ten times fast. I can't. <laughs> Uh, repetitive parallelism and basically the idea or the concept is uh, she's saying many of the same things in different ways using different words it's almost like rhyming but the words don't necessarily rhyme they just connect she's saying a lot of the same things about god just using different words this was uh, a way they wrote poetry like uh, in that culture in that time and look what she says about god she says, no one is holy like the Lord. There is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. She realizes how God is holy, how he's set apart, how he's unique, how there's none like him. But there's also a truth for us as well. We know the Lord is holy. We know he's set apart. We know he's unique, but he calls us to be holy too, right? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says just that. Be holy, for I am holy. Though there's none like God, we're called to be like him. So she recognizes God's holiness. Look what happens. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So she starts addressing the proud. She starts addressing the arrogant. Specifically, she's speaking of Penina, right? Because Penina was boastful about all the children she had. She was proud. She was arrogant. But this is a specific, uh, is specifically for Penina, but it also relates to, to, to people like Penina. It's representing a generality, a general people group, the the proud, the arrogant, the boastful, because this is also going to connect to other people in this chapter. It's also going to connect to Hophni and Phinehas. The Lord, he says so much against the proud and the boastful, and we'll see that's a primary character quality in, of many of the unrighteous leaders that we'll look at in First and Second Samuel. We know that God, he resists the proud he resists the proud but he gives grace to who he gives grace to the humble now remember who penina was always boasting always arrogant always prideful it's like you know those people that they always talk about themselves like they always say like how good they are or how good they are at doing something they, they they talk themselves up they're trying to like prove themselves to you like i'm so good at this i'm so good at that and my kids let me tell you they're the best kids in the world and and, and this kind of thing that's who penina that's who penina was she's just putting it in hannah's face and hannah's like eh, god is completely against that he's a against the arrogant he's against the proud he's against the boastful look what happens first samuel chapter 2 verse 4 i'm going a little fast tonight because we got a lot i know i am i'm doing it on purpose first samuel chapter 2 verse 4 the bows of the mighty men are broken and those who stumbled are girded with strength Okay, so again, he's speaking of the proud and the humble. God humbles the proud. He exalts the humble. 
First Samuel chapter two, verse five. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set him among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. Now we see Hannah is describing some 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 deep insight into the kingdom of God. She, she talks about the, the hungry, no longer hungering. She talks about God exalting the beggar. When we look at what Jesus says about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God, uh, as it's discussed throughout the Bible, we see it's almost like the opposite of the kingdom of the earth. It's like the opposite. Okay, those who are poor are going to be, going to be rich, right? Those who are rich are going to be poor. Now we know it's not about finances. That's not what gets you in the kingdom or, or kicks you out of the kingdom. But we see the Lord, He often teaches in regards to the kingdom of God. There's like this opposite thing, right? The last will be first and the first will be last. He hammers so many of these things home. It's like different than the way we see the world. Uh, we have this like dog eat dog mentality. I gotta, I gotta get my own. I gotta make it to the top. And that's the way of the world. Jesus is like, no, no, you gotta, you gotta identify with the lowly, identify with the lowly seat, seek humble things. And then the Lord will exalt you again. He, she talks about the, the beggar. Look at verse eight. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar. Now, this was interesting because across that culture, we see it uh, a lot in Job. But even in the New Testament, we see this this belief that those who were rich were blessed by God. If you were rich, if you had money, that meant God had favor on your life. Okay, we talked about this with the rich young ruler a couple weeks ago. But if you were rich, people believed, not biblically, people believed that that meant You were going to heaven. God had favor on your life. You were sealed for the day of redemption. But that's not true. And Jesus addresses this so many different times. I think there's a great story in Luke chapter 16. I'll just tell you it. Jesus is telling this story of this man named Lazarus, and he's a beggar, right? This man named Lazarus is a beggar, and he sits outside of the temple gates, and we see this man who's referred to as a rich man. His name's not even mentioned. And Jesus, he's trying to get this point across to the disciples. He tells them that they both end up dying, Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus, he ends up going to Abraham's bosom. Okay, he's he's going to be saved. Okay, now the rich man, he ends up being condemned to hell. This like threw the disciples for a loop. Like we, I thought rich people made it to heaven. He's like, no, no, no. the beggar's going to make it to heaven. And he's not making it to heaven because he's a beggar. He's making it to heaven because he's begging for Jesus. He's making it to heaven because he has a relationship with Jesus. It's not about our wealth. It's not about our finances. It's all about our relationship with the Lord. See, Hannah, she receives this deep insight when so many of that day believe, yeah, the rich inherit eternal life. God reveals to Hannah, it doesn't really work like that. Those that are poor, not just materially, what Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are in need realize their need for Jesus. Those will be the ones that enter into eternal life. She says, the end of verse 8, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. What she's saying? Basically, she's saying God's in control. She sees God's sovereignty. After what? After God answered her prayer, right? She begged for this thing. Her husband couldn't provide it. We addressed that last week. Only God could open her womb. Only God can open the womb. God was able to provide something that Elkanah could not provide. And because God did that, he answered that prayer. She recognized that God's in control. She recognized that God is sovereign. When God answers our prayers, we recognize his sovereignty. Oh my gosh, God, no one could have done that but you. And maybe we respond in a similar way. She puts it this way. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. Meaning God's got all things in his hand. He controls all things. First Samuel chapter 2 verse 9. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. 
For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now this is interesting. I really want to look at the end of verse 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Wait a minute. There hasn't been a king in Israel yet. Saul will be the first king in Israel. Yet Hannah is praying this before likely Saul wasn't even born yet. There had been no king in Israel up to this point. Yet Hannah receiving revelation from the Lord, she prays this prayer. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Who is she speaking of? She's speaking of Jesus, his anointed. That's that's the Messiah. That's what Messiah means. Mashiach, it means the anointed one. That's who Jesus is. He is the king. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. The Greek for Messiah is the Christ. She realizes, recognizes that God is going to put in place this king, not just King David, but this king who's going to rule and reign forever. First Samuel. <clears throat> Before I end that prayer real quick, this is also really cool. As I told you before, this prayer is pretty famous throughout uh, the culture and, and history of, of the, the Jewish people. And we see um, Mary, uh, Mary prays a very similar prayer that Hannah prayed as if she knew the prayer. And she likely did because she had access to the word of God. We also see Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, if you would with me real quick, and speaking of the Lord, he says this, Zacharias, remember he was muted because he doubted, but now he's able to speak. He's filled with the Spirit, the Scriptures say. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 69, it says this, speaking of God, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. What's the word horn mean? What's the horn mean? Power or strength, right? Okay. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Who have been since the world began. So he talks about this horn of salvation. The power of salvation. It's of God, right? It comes through the person of, of Jesus Christ. And he says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Hannah is prophesying right now. This prayer is prophetic. Basically, he's almost quoting this prayer, if you will, the horn of God's salvation in the house of David. It's through the person of Jesus Christ. Picking it back up in 1 Samuel. Chapter 2, verse 11. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now, we don't know quite uh, how much time has passed, but Samuel was only around the age of two or three years old when he got dedicated, right? We talked about that in that culture. Uh, you would be weaned after two or three years old, and that's when uh, Hannah takes Samuel to the temple. So he's very young. He's like a toddler at this time, and yet it says the child ministered to the, uh, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Samuel ministered to the Lord as a toddler. What does that mean? It means nobody's too young to minister to the Lord. No one's too young to seek the Lord. In fact, the Lord loves when children seek Him. We see in Matthew chapter 21, uh, the triumphal entry just after it, Jesus' last week on earth. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus says this, and I absolutely love it. Matthew chapter 21, verse 15, says this. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. These are children crying out. They were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. 
the kids are worshiping the Lord. They recognize who he is. And it's such a powerful thing. I can imagine, only imagine little Samuel just praising the Lord, just ministering to God. When you watch a child minister to the Lord, there's this just purity and this sincerity about it. It's so touching. It's so moving. Uh, my nieces, they, uh, they, they go to church and, uh, they have their little, uh, studies that they do and everything. My, my, my oldest niece, she's six. She does this little, like, this song. Um, and she does sign language with the song, and it's basically the gospel. It really, she just shares the gospel, and she has it down packed by memory. Uh, we asked her to, to, to tell us the story of, of Jesus' birth, and she like, I feel like she said more than I would have said. She like knows it, like she knows the story so well, but she starts singing this song and doing the sign language, and you know that she means it. She believes this, and it, like every time it just gets me. It chokes me up. It's like, man, this little child praising the Lord, there's something so powerful about it. Samuel, he's a toddler, but he's not too young to minister to the Lord. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. So in the Hebrew, uh, it says that the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. Okay, Belial was a pagan god. So whether they're literally sons of this pagan god is what he's saying. Spiritually, I should say, not literally. Okay, they're literally sons of Eli, but spiritually they're sons of Belial. This referred to their wickedness, their corruption. And that's exactly what it says here. The sons of Eli were corrupt. Why? They did not know the Lord. Corrupt leadership comes from not knowing the Lord. Point number two, not knowing God leads to corruption. Not knowing God leads to corruption. That was the source of their corruption. They didn't know the Lord. In Galatians chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, says, says this, when I get to it. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, it says, But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. See what he's saying? Before we served the living God, before we realized he was the living God, before we knew him, we served other gods. That's the problem with the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. They don't know God, so they're serving other gods, probably not even knowing it. But they're serving these other gods. That's why they're called the sons of Belial. They're corrupted. See, if we don't know God, we'll fall into corruption too. And I'm not just talking about knowing about God. I'm not just talking about like knowing what the Bible says or or hearing a Bible study or coming to church. I'm talking about that that Greek word gnosko, right? That that experiential intimate knowledge, knowing God. Not just they, they knew about God. They they knew what the scripture said. They knew stories, but they didn't know God. They were priests and they yet did not know God. When we do know God, then that compels us, that motivates us to live righteously. Knowing God leads us to become like God. In fact, if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, First Thessalonians 4, uh, verse 1. To five. Finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know that you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. What's Paul saying? Knowing God will lead to our sanctification. Exactly what I said. Knowing God will lead us to become like God. If I don't know God, what's my motivation for living righteously? What's my motivation to in, in establishing character? 
if I don't have the accountability of God, if I don't know God, if I'm not practicing his presence, then there is no motivation. See, Hophni and Phinehas, they don't know the Lord. They, 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 they likely don't even believe. Okay, It doesn't say that, but they certainly don't know him. And because they don't know him, once again, they lead in corruption. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 13. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So this was the priest's custom. Now, this isn't what God instituted in Leviticus when we talk about sacrifices and offerings, okay? What was instituted by God was that the first portion, the fat, and depending on the offering, some other things, uh, entrails and whatnot, uh, the, the fat was the first portion that was given, and it was first given to God. Okay, then the priest received a portion, and then the person providing the sacrifice, providing the offering, they received a portion as well, as long as it wasn't a sin offering. Okay, so we see this was the original custom because this was what God said. Now the custom changes. Now the priests have a servant come in while the people are boiling or cooking the offering and they come in with a three-pronged fish hook type of thing, a fork if you will, and they just take whatever comes up. This is before we'll see they burn the fat. There's more to this. Let's look what happens. First Samuel chapter 2 verse 15. Also before they burn the fat. This is crucial. The priests served the priest servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. So we see God, as I said, was supposed to get the first portion. He was supposed to get the fat. OK, God was supposed to go first, but they're not putting him first. They're putting themselves, literally, Hophni and Phinehas are putting themselves before the Lord. No, 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 we go first. God doesn't go first. We go first. We get our portion first. They literally put themselves before the Lord. Now, it says that they wanted raw meat. They weren't supposed to take raw meat, okay? It was supposed to be cooked. Now, there's different opinions about why they would take the meat raw. Um, it could be one of two things, most likely. Uh, first of all, maybe they wanted the raw meat so they could cook it how they wanted. Okay. They didn't want the boiled meat. They wanted to cook it the way they liked it. Okay. They, they, they wanted to bake it. I don't know what they wanted to do with it or possibly they wanted to sell it. Why? Because raw meat was easier to sell than cooked meat. They could sell raw meat in the marketplace and make a profit regardless of their reason for taking it while it was raw. The reason was selfish. It was self-centered. They were seeking their own. This is the kind of leaders they were. Because they didn't know God, that led them to be corrupt. Now we're understanding what this corruption looked like, and it looks like them being selfish. In James chapter 3, uh, verses 13 to 18, you don't have to turn there. Um, it, it talks about the, the wisdom of demons versus the wisdom of God. And it says the wisdom of demons is self-seeking. What they're doing is demonic. It's self-seeking. They're making the decisions by how, uh, as to how they're going to benefit, what they're going to gain from this, and they're not taking the people into consideration. Look what happens. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 16. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, because that was the proper custom, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. So they're preventing the people that are providing the offerings from doing it the way God told them. They're saying, no, 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 no. You can't do the fat. You can't do the fat first. You got to give me my portion first. It's like, I don't care what you take. I just want to do this the proper way so that God will be honored through my sacrifice. Nope, it's not happening. And they demand, he says, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. They're operating as dictators, but not as disciplers. Point number three, disciplers aren't dictators. 
Disciplers aren't dictators. And that's what God calls each of us to be. Go, therefore, and make disciples, right? We're all called to be disciples, but not just be disciples. We're called to be disciples that make disciples. In some sense, we're all called to be disciplers. We're all called to invest those things which have been invested in us, commit those things to faithful men. These men, they're just dictators. They're demanding the sacrificers, the worshipers to give them something so that they can gain, so that they can benefit from the people. And they're selfish. They're not selfless. See, dictators, they pursue power. Disciplers, they pursue love. And these men, they're pursuing power because they don't know love, because they don't know God. There's this crazy story. Uh, Stalin, okay, when he ruled Russia, uh, he was a dictator, to say the least. Maybe you've heard this story before. Uh, and he was being interviewed, and he wanted to make a point because he was asked a question about, hey, why, why don't you care that all your people are suffering, they're starving, all these bad things are happening to the Russians? And he said, okay. He grabs a chicken. Okay, this is disturbing. I'm just warning you. He grabs a chicken, and he starts plucking out the feathers one by one. Plucks out the, the chicken is going crazy. It's in pain. It's being brutalized. He plucks the entire chicken feather by feather. And then he lets the chicken go. And then he holds out feed for the chicken and the chicken comes running back. And what Stalin's point was, you can hurt a people. You can make a people suffer. You can torture people as much as you want. If you feed them, they'll follow you. That was his mentality. That's literally how he thought. I can torture my people. Why? Because I want to inspire fear in them. I want them to be afraid to do anything wrong. But as long as I feed them, they'll follow me. So sad, but so true. That's how dictators operate. They don't care about the people. They care about power and what they want to accomplish. Dictators, they, they use fear and force, but godly leaders, disciplers, they use truth and love. And that's what we're called to do as leaders. We're, we're called to inspire people in love, not demand them that they do these certain things. You have to do this or you can't do that. That's what Hophni and Phineas are, are doing in this text through their servant. They're, if he doesn't give it to you, take it by force. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 17. Anyone ever heard that story before? No? No? First Samuel chapter 2, verse 17. Hopefully you don't have nightmares tonight. <laughs> Sorry for my chicken lovers out there. Therefore the sin of the young men, verse 17, was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. See what happens? They literally led people away from God. Because the people couldn't even sacrifice the way they were supposed to, as described in Leviticus. They led people astray. People didn't want to come and worship God anymore. Because they weren't worshiping God on God's terms. They were worshiping God on Eli, or sorry, Hophni and Phineas's terms. So they literally led people astray. See, God, he takes it very seriously when his people when his leaders people that he's put in position of any type of authority when they lead people astray that's no joke for the lord in fact he says it like this in matthew chapter 18 matthew chapter 18 verse 6 jesus says but whoever causes one of these little ones now He's speaking of children generally, but specifically he's speaking of the children of God. We've taught this in the past. These little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man whom the offense comes. When we cause one of the little ones, when we cause one of the Lord's children, it doesn't have to be a little kid, it can be an adult, when we cause one of them to, to stumble, when we cause one of them to sin, the Lord takes that very seriously. Hophni and Phineas, they were leading the people astray to the point that they didn't even want to come to the tabernacle to worship God. They were being prevented from worshiping God. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 18. But Samuel... Ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing, wearing a linen 
ephod. But Samuel, that's crucial, Holy Spirit inspired, just talking about the corruption of Hophni and Phinehas, but Samuel. But Samuel was going to be something different. Samuel was going to be a righteous leader. Samuel was going to be someone that knew God and pursued God and led his people down the right path. Contrast. Hophni and Phinehas versus Samuel. Now we see this played out, and you see this actually played out throughout First and Second Samuel. The, the contrasting thing of, 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 of corrupt leaders and, and righteous leaders. And it will go back and forth throughout these two books that we're going to get through. This is no different. Hophni and Phinehas, corrupt. Samuel, righteous. Verse 18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Now this is interesting wearing a linen ephod that was uh, something that a priest would wear even as a kid he's wearing a linen ephod okay we might say uh, that'd be kind of funny did they make it the right size I, I i don't really know but that was something that was supposed to be given to a man when he actually like matured and became a priest this says something about samuel it says that he has character qualities of a priest even at this young age so eli blessed him with an ephod verse 19 first samuel chapter 2 Verse 19, moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So we still see this faithfulness of Elkanah and Hannah. They continue to come up to provide sacrifices for the Lord. Verse 20, and Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home and the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. How many is that? Three sons and two daughters, five more kids. See, it wasn't that something was wrong with Hannah and why she was barren and why she wasn't able to have kids. It was all part of God's plan. Remember, it says in the last chapter that God closed her womb. God closed her room for, womb for a purpose. Why? I said it last week to bring her to that place of brokenness that she would dedicate the first thing that came out of her womb to God. God knowing that that would be Samuel. God knowing that Israel needed a righteous leader in a very dark time period. So what we see, Hannah brought to a place of brokenness, dedicates Samuel. God provides Samuel for her. And now not only does God provide Samuel, five more kids. That's what God does when we give him our first fruits. Imagine if she didn't dedicate Samuel. She probably wouldn't have had these five kids. Okay, But she literally gave God the first fruits of her womb and God blessed her with more. God blesses us when we give him the first fruits. First fruits, what do I mean? Could be the first fruit of your time during your day. The first thing you do in the morning, do you, do you get up and give that time to the Lord? It's biblical. First fruit of, of finances called the tithe, not the last 10%, but the first 10%. Why? Because when we give God the first of what he gives us, then it gives him the opportunity to bless the rest. She gave him the first child and now he blesses her with five, five more children. It's an amazing thing. Hannah was faithful to give what she knew God was calling her to give and God blessed her. First Samuel chapter 2. Verse 22, now Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Okay, now it's getting even, even worse. It's getting even filthier and raunchier. Eli, he heard all these things that Hophni and Phinehas were doing and he's going to say something. He'll rebuke them, but he's not going to do enough. Why? He's very complacent in how he confronts his sons. And we already talked about this last week. We're going to see it again. I told you we'd see it again this week. Eli has a problem with complacency. Point number four, complacency is costly. Complacency is costly. Now he will say something, and I'll get into that in the next verse. But he doesn't do enough. For us, complacency can cost us so many different things. It can, it can cost us opportunities. It could cost us relationships. It could cost us, you name it, but it doesn't always cost us. Sometimes it costs 
others. When the Lord shows us something, reveals something to us that's, that's off. Something that we need to say something about or confront somebody uh, with something that we witnessed or we heard or whatever it may be. It could cost someone else, if we don't say something, could cost them significantly. He says this, God tells Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 3. In Ezekiel chapter 3, God has a message for Israel. And he says... In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. I mean, you, you need to watch out for my people. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Wait a minute. He was the one that was wicked. He was the one that was in sin. He was the one that were doing all those deeds. God says, hey, Ezekiel, if you don't say something, the blood's on you. I told you to say something. Eli, he heard about these things. Okay, He could have went about the situation different, but the Lord sometimes will reveal things to us. He'll say, hey, you need to say something about this. If you don't say something, the blood is on your hands. Sad story. My dad just told me about a week, two weeks ago. Uh, he was painting in his retirement, he started a painting company. He just can't be still, I guess. Um, so he, he started this painting company, and he was painting for this uh, guy um, that was renting this house, a, a pretty big house, I guess, and he met this guy. His name was Ramsey, and he was talking to him, real interesting guy. They, they hit it off, and my dad said he felt like a nudge to, 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 to share the gospel with him, and he didn't do it. A uh, couple days later, um, Ramsey died in his house. Um, they believe he overdosed, but Ramsey died. And, and, and my daddy could have said something. And he calls me. He's like, oh, I, I knew I was supposed to, and I could have, and, and I didn't. I didn't. And now that guy, I don't know. It, he, he very well may be in hell right now. And I talked to my dad, and, uh, you know, he's, he's okay now, but it was a, it was a life-changing lesson for him. And, 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 I, and I think the Lord's going to use it quite a bit. But the point is, for each and every one of us, if God nudges us to say something or to do something or confront someone, do it. Because it might cost you, it might cost them. This man, it cost him potentially his soul. Now, Eli, we'll see. He's going to confront them, but he could have done more. I'll explain that. But I want to point out one more thing real quick. Not only were Hophni and Phinehas corrupt in the sense that they stole from God, really, and stole from God's people. It says that they laid with women, too, right outside the tabernacle. Okay, so their sin is abundant. Okay, there's so many different things that they were doing, and Eli caught wind of it. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 23. So he said to them, why do you do such things? He's speaking to his sons. For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. So we see that Eli, he does confront his sons, which was a good thing, but he only says something. And he knows this stuff has been going on for a while. He said something, but he didn't do something. And we're going to see God is going to judge him for this because he could have stood up for righteousness and he didn't do all that he could to prevent his sons from continuing in this sin. And it says, look at verse 24. You make the Lord's people transgress. Literally, Hophni and Phinehas were leading the people into sin. Okay? See, God, we discussed how not all of us have the gift of leadership, right? Uh, some of us have the gift of leadership, and there's some great, strong, gifted leaders in this church, but we're all called to lead in some capacity. For those who may have the gift of leadership, recognize that's a gift that's going to be used for right or for wrong, people will follow you. You're an influencer. Maybe you have that gift of leadership. And whether you're walking in righteousness or walking in unrighteousness, people are going to follow you. These people are following Hophni and Phinehas. They are leaders, but they're following them. They're, now Hophni and Phinehas are leading them astray. You make the Lord's people transgress. They're leading the people into sin. 
1 Samuel, I want to reread verse 25, chapter 2. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. <laughs> Eli, he's coming from a place of, of hopelessness. He's like, hey, if a man sins against a man, okay, we can deal with that. But if a man sins against God, who is there to intercede for him? What's going to happen? Basically, what he's saying is, it doesn't matter how much I pray for my sons. If they don't repent, God is going to destroy them. But we know something that Eli didn't. We do have someone that intercedes on our behalf. We do have an advocate in the person of Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and man. That's the person of Jesus Christ. And Romans chapter 8 tells us that he does intercede on our behalf. The New Testament answers... Eli's question and it says they did not heed the voice of their father okay to hear is one thing to heed is another thing to heed is like I'm putting this into action they didn't heed the voice they got a warning but they didn't do anything with the warning so you got to warn us sometimes sometimes he'll, he'll warn us through the word sometimes he'll warn us through some encounter we have with them sometimes he'll warn us through people if we don't heed the warning then we're inviting the consequences these men they wouldn't heed the warning and they're going to face the consequences it says at the end of verse 25 because the lord desired to kill them okay <laughs> it's not like the Lord's like super excited that he gets to kill Hophni and Phineas, right? That's not his heart. That's not what the text is saying. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, you can write it down. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, it says this, God takes no pleasure in the death of one who dies, not even the wicked, okay? God doesn't even take pleasure when wicked people die, okay? So it's not like God's like, yes, I want to take these guys out. No. God had to kill them. Why? To seek justice. It's not that God wanted Hophni and Phinehas to die. He just wanted his people to live. And Hophni and Phinehas were preventing his people, the children of Israel, from living. These leaders were robbing them of the life that God had wanted for them. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I not cl- clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? So we see this man. We don't know who the man is. It just says a man of God. That's enough. God had sent him. He goes and he talks to Eli and he tells him, hey, he reminds him of his calling. Did I not call your father? He's likely speaking of Aaron. Okay. Uh, through his line would be the, the priests. Okay. So he says, I, I've called you to this. He's reminding Eli of his calling and being a priest and being a leader and how he hasn't lived up to the calling. He's trying to make him aware, hey man, you're, you're, you're messing up. You're not doing what you've been called to do. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 29. Why do you kick up my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? So we see that God rebukes Eli through this man of God because Eli is favoring his sons more than he's favoring God. He's literally choosing his family over God. That's when things get messed up, right? We talk about it all the time. We got to put God first. That's why Jesus makes it very clear in Luke chapter 14. He says, he says, you need to forsake all and follow me. You need to hate mother, father, sister, brother, whatever, in comparison to your love for me. That's what he's saying. He doesn't want us to hate our family. He wants us to love him so much that our love for others looks like hate in comparison. That's how much he desires us to love him because only then will things line up and life happen the way that it's supposed to be. See, Eli didn't love God enough. He loved his sons more and it caused corruption and darkness in the whole state of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming. 
Oh, I skipped verse 30. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming, and I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your, in your house. He's not telling him he's really going to cut off his arm, okay? <laughs> he, he's telling him, I'm going to cut off your lineage. I'm going to cut off your position, okay? <laughs> God didn't really cut off his arm. It would have been interesting. He could have justified it, but that's not what happens. First Samuel chapter 2. Verse 32, and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever, but any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now we see this is fulfilled with Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27. You can just write it down for time's sake. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27. Solomon cuts off Abiathar, which was the last line of priests from Eli. God's not saying that he's going to cut off the lineage of Aaron. No, he's saying he's going to cut off the lineage specifically where it branched off to Eli. It doesn't happen right now. He's still going to have some descendants, but those descendants will be later cut off from the priesthood. This scripture is fulfilled later on, as I said in 1 Kings. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 34. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas, and one day they shall die, both of them. This is actually going to happen. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. So we see God speaking through this man of God about this specific person, this priest, his anointed forever. Now we know Samuel partially fulfills this, okay? He's going to be the next priest that's raised up and he is a faithful man, okay? But he's not God's priest forever, yeah? He's specifically speaking of the person of Jesus Christ, right? In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 12 to 17, Uh, He talks about that, how Jesus is the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. The first priest we see in Genesis, Jesus is the priest of God, the faithful priest of God forever. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 36. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please Put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. So we see part of this prophecy is not just that they're going to be cut off from their priestly duties and priestly position, but they're going to be beggars, in other words. And and when we look at this judgment, it's pretty just, right? Hophni and Phinehas were constantly stealing from God and stealing from the people. So now he's making them beggars, uh, their descendants anyways. And this emphasizes the truth once again that we talked about a few weeks ago. Our decisions literally do affect our descendants. They do, and the decisions that these men made literally affected people all the way down the road if they would have just lived the way God was calling them to. If they would have just answered that call and and be those set-apart holy priests, this wouldn't have had to happen to Eli and his descendants. So, in this chapter, we see this sincere seeker in the person of Hannah, right? We also see a sincere seeker in the person of Samuel, even though he's likely a toddler at this age. And then we see these corrupt leaders, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli somewhat, but it was more his complacency that led to his demise, We see the difference between these two groups is just that. (laughs) Hannah and Samuel are seeking God. They know God. Hophni and Phinehas are not seeking God. They're seeking what's going to benefit them, and they don't know God. There's so many awesome things in this book, but this theme continues to come up throughout the book, and it's as simple as this. God's looking for men and women after his own heart. God's searching for men that are searching for him. That's really what it comes out of. That's what distinguishes the corrupt leaders from the righteous leaders throughout this entire book. Those that are seeking God and those that aren't. So, who are we going to be? 
If anyone says a Hophni and Phineas, I don't even know what to tell you. Nobody wants to be Hophni and Phineas, right? We want to be like Hannah. We want to be like Samuel. We want to be faithful seekers of God. And when we are, when we seek him, we will become like him. We will be molded into the leaders, into the men, into the women that God has called us to be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. God, that, that your word is so deep, uh, yet you, you make things simple. God, we can think about these things for um, forever, and, and we will be in part. Um, but Lord, I, I thank you that, that you break it down so simply for us. It's, it's about seeking you and sincerely seeking you. And, and that's what shapes us. That's what molds us. As we seek you, we find you, you change us. Lord, and then and only then can we be uh, the men and women that you've called us to be. We love you. In your name, amen.